0: Good morning St. Paul's. Uh, Thank you so much Steve for leading us in worship. Believe it or not, this is now our seventh week now doing these uh, virtual services. Um, I hope you guys are hanging in there okay. As Keith just said, uh, if you were on a few seconds ago, um, we really miss you guys. Um, As I say every week, this is not ideal, Um, but uh, we're still... Praying that God will work through this service, and uh, I appreciated what Steve Steve said about keeping the sacred appointment uh, every week. That is what we were doing uh, as we have this virtual service. So uh, today we are going to be continuing in our uh, two-part uh, sermon on the Beatitudes. Uh, we started that last week. Hopefully you you heard it. If you didn't, I encourage you sometime this week to go back, check the videos tabs on our page, and. Uh, Listen to that message. That is pretty important for putting what I'm about to say today in context. Um, but for anyone who doesn't know, the Beatitudes are eight descriptions Jesus gave for what blessedness looks like. And as I emphasized last week, Jesus' descriptions of blessedness don't line up very well with our ideas of what blessedness looks like. Usually we associate blessedness with good fortune, You know, with uh, money and power and health. Uh, But then Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek. And so Jesus challenges us to rethink what true blessedness looks like. Last week we looked at the first four Beatitudes, this week we're looking at the second four Beatitudes. I'm calling this two-part series, Blessings for a Pandemic. And the reason I'm calling that is not because Jesus was speaking directly to the situation of a pandemic, but because these blessings that Jesus describes are just as available to us in the midst of a pandemic as they are during ordinary circumstances. In fact, as I said last week, they might even be more available to us in the midst of a pandemic uh, than in the usual course of life. Um, So... Let's let's look at the second half of the Beatitudes. If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Let's pray together before we look at this. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning. Um, We thank you for your, uh, your teaching that surprises us and challenges us. Lord, right now I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to be able to receive it. Lord, I pray uh, that your uh, your beatitudes would work in our minds to transform the way we think and that they would work in our hearts to transform the way that we live so that we can live more in the way that you have made us uh, to live, Lord. We are open to receive from you now, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Matthew 5, starting in verse 7. rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you all right so just like last week let's take these blessings one at a time first one blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy so the first thing we have to ask ourselves in learning how to appreciate this beatitude is what exactly did jesus mean with that word merciful and uh I think what we need to realize is that usually, today, when we hear the word mercy, we always think of it in the context of forgiveness, or maybe of sparing someone a punishment that they deserve. So, for example, if you wrong me uh, and I forgive you, that would be seen as an act of mercy. So often, when we read about mercy in the Bible, we think about it in that context of forgiveness. But what we need to recognize is that, when that, that word merciful is used, that word from the Greek, it has a broader meaning than just talking about forgiveness. Yes, forgiveness is an act of mercy, uh, but mercy is something bigger than just forgiving people. And specifically, what mercy is, is what we would call compassion. Compassion. Now, what is compassion? That word, it's made up of a prefix and a Latin word, com and passion. Com means with And passion comes from the Latin passio, which means suffering. So to be a compassionate person is to be someone who suffers with. Uh, Some of you are probably familiar with the movie, The Passion of the Christ, or that phrase, The Passion of the Christ. Uh, That's an example of where passion is being used in that classic Latin sense of referring to suffering, right? So compassion, suffer with. So forgiving somebody, looking at them and and feeling uh, uh, sadness for them in their unforgiven state, and then giving them that forgiveness, that is an act of mercy. But bigger than that, to be merciful is to be compassionate, to suffer with people. Uh, The theologian William Barclay, he describes mercy in this way. He says, mercy, or compassion, is to get inside someone's skin until we can see things with their eyes, think things with their mind, and feel things with their feelings. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it, and that's what Jesus had in mind, that kind of definition, when he said, blessed are the merciful. He's saying God is with those who are able to see things from someone else's perspective. God is with those who, when they witness others' suffering, it's like that suffering becomes their suffering, too. That's compassion. That's mercy. And if you have any doubt that that's what Jesus has in mind here, let me point out something. Uh, This adjective, merciful, that that word that gets translated as merciful, it only occurs one other time in the New Testament. Now, to be fair, the word mercy is all over the New Testament. But specifically, that adjectival form of merciful, uh, it only appears one other time, and it's in the book of Hebrews... And it's when the author of Hebrews is talking about why the Son of God needed to become human. Why the Son of God needed to uh, become incarnate. And it says this in Hebrews 2, verse 17. The reason the Son of God needed to share in humanity was so that he might become a merciful high priest. The reason the Son of God needed to share in humanity so that he might become a Why would there be this connection between the Son of God taking on flesh and him becoming merciful? Well, the reason is because the essence of mercy is to suffer with, right? It's as Barclay said, to get inside someone's skin and see with their eyes and feel their pain. And when we understand mercy in this way, we can see that the greatest act of mercy in the history of the world is the incarnation, right? when the Son of God became human and suffered with and for us. That is mercy. That is the essence of mercy. Now, let's take a moment to think about what being merciful looks like in the midst of this unique situation that we're in. If we are people of the kingdom of God, we should be operating according to what I would call a mercy ethic. Right? A way of living that is filled with mercy, filled with compassion. A way of living where we see others' pain, and that pain, we feel that pain, and we act to try and relieve that pain. Now, the opposite of the mercy ethic is what we might call the survival of the fittest ethic. Now, what is the survival of the fittest ethic? People who abide by the survival of the fittest ethic think like this. Well, if we observe the world, it's basically survival of the fittest. Right, Organisms that are physically stronger, that have healthier immune systems, uh, that can produce more offspring, those are the organisms that survive and they're the ones that have more offspring. Right, Those that are physically weaker, weaker immune systems, uh, they don't live as long and they don't produce as much offspring. And this is just the way that biological organisms work. And It's also the way that things ought to work. We shouldn't really interfere with it very much. So people who have a survival of the fittest ethic in the midst of a pandemic, their attitude is gonna be something like, you know, well, it's unfortunate that this uh, disease is going to uh, kill people with weaker immune systems, people who are elderly, uh, people who are immunocompromised, have physical conditions, that sort of thing. That's unfortunate, but we shouldn't sacrifice a lot to try and protect them, because this is just the way that the world works. It's survival of the fittest. Now, that might sound incredibly cruel, and I hope it sounds incredibly cruel to you. But what I want us to recognize is that there are many people who think this way about the world. That way of thinking about the world may be a lot more common than you think. Recently, I, uh, I read part of an interview with a film director named David Cronenberg. Back in 2005, Cronenberg was interviewed about a film that he had just released uh, called A History of Violence. And in that interview, but by the way, I have not seen A History of Violence, and I'm not recommending A History of Violence. I'm just saying. I was reading this interview. <laughs> and Cronenberg said, In that interview, I am a complete Darwinian. I am a complete Darwinian. And what he meant by that is, I subscribe to a survival of the fittest ethic. Basically, I believe that the way the world operates is according to survival of the fittest, and that's really the way that it ought to be. And he was saying that this film, A History of Violence, was basically a dramatic expression of the survival of the fittest ethic that he subscribes to. And when I read that, I thought, my goodness, that is evil. That is evil. Because it is an unashamed rejection of Jesus' teaching that blessed are the merciful. Unashamed rejection. And you know what? Even though it was an unashamed rejection of that, Cronenberg didn't suffer any social costs for saying, I'm a complete Darwinian. If anything, people just thought, oh, isn't he so artsy and edgy and brave artistically? He had no, it cost him nothing, even though that ethic is pure evil. It is anti-Christ ethic. Jesus does not want us to hear people like Cronenberg say, I'm a complete Darwinian, I believe an ethic uh, of survival of the fittest. He doesn't want us to hear people say that, and for us to go, oh, how brave and artsy and thoughtful. He wants us to think, that is wicked, that is so wicked. Because blessed are the merciful, blessed are the compassionate, blessed are the people who see others suffering, and feel that suffering as their own, and work to alleviate that suffering. Blessed are those who see the value in all people, whether they have weak immune systems or physical conditions or, or if they're handicapped or anything like that. Blessed are the people who see the value of everybody. Okay. Blessed are the merciful. It, it, blessed are not the people who think that it is somehow virtuous to just let the weak die off. So survival of the, survival of the fittest says blessed are the people who use their strength dominate. That's what survival of the fittest says. Blessed are the people who use their strength to dominate. But Jesus, and the mercy ethic, says, blessed are those who use their strength to make the weak stronger. Blessed are those who use their strength to make the weak stronger. And in fact, I thought that was such an important point that I made a low-tech slide for it. So, here you go. If you're taking notes, blessed are those who use their strength make the weak stronger. I want us to remember that one. All right, let's move on to the next one. I know we spent quite a bit of time on that one. We're going to move through the, the rest of them faster. Next one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, before we think about what it means to be pure in heart, I want us to think about the reward of being pure in heart. Seeing God. Uh, Jesus doesn't say that the pure in heart will always be healthy or wealthy, uh, but he says that they will see God. How does that sound to you? Seeing God. We might not realize it, but the greatest reward, the greatest thing that we can experience in life is seeing God. The experience of of God, the experience of a close relationship with God, feeling his love, feeling his peace, feeling his presence. Whether we realize it or not, that is really what our hearts desire more than anything else, to see God. And the good news is, it doesn't matter whether we're in the midst of a pandemic or not. Uh, in, in the midst of a pandemic, you might not be able to see sports on TV, and you might not be able to... Uh, see a growing 401k, right, but you still have the opportunity to see God, which is the thing that you really long for most of all, whether you realize it or not. Now, Jesus says that the way to see God is through being pure of heart. What does that mean? Well, the key to understanding that phrase, pure of heart, is to contrast it with purity of appearance, okay? There's purity of heart, and there's purity of appearance. And Jesus often criticized the religious leaders for caring a lot more about their purity of appearance, how they look to everyone around me, than their actual purity uh, of hearts. So, for example, Jesus says in Matthew 23, uh, 25, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside... They are full of greed and self-indulgence. So what Jesus is saying there is that the Pharisees have their priorities backwards. Uh, They were like people who obsessively cleaned the outside of a cup, uh, but the inside they left filthy. And uh, if you're going to take a drink out of a cup, I don't think there's any question about what's more important, right? It's more important that the inside is clean. The Pharisees wanted to appear pure and righteous and holy to everyone around them, Uh, but internally, they were none of those things. Internally, they were motivated by greed and self-indulgence. They had purity of appearance, but not purity of heart. A pure heart is more interested in actually seeking God than appearing to be seeking God. A pure heart is more interested in actually being holy than looking holy. Pure heart is more interested in what God thinks than what everybody else thinks. Another aspect of a pure heart is it is a heart that is seeking God without a bunch of ulterior motives. Um, Here's a way of checking your purity of heart. Uh, If you do things like pray, read the Bible, go to church, do you do those things because you want to know God? Or do you do those things because you think that if you do them, God will give you stuff you want? You see the difference there? A pure heart seeks God because it wants to know God, right? But an impure heart seeks God just to get stuff from God. If you were to marry someone just because they were rich, that's it, that's the only reason why, uh, you would not be marrying them with a pure heart, right? Because that marriage would not be... Uh, based on the desire for the relationship and knowing the other person. It would have just this ulterior motive of gaining wealth. And Jesus is saying that the people who really see God, the people who really experience what their hearts truly long for, the people who are truly blessed, are the people without all these ulterior motives, the people who seek God for the sake of knowing God. Now here's the tough thing about this beatitude. I don't know anybody who is completely pure of heart. I'm not completely pure of heart. Nobody is. You know, plenty of us, we try to appear more religious, more holy, more righteous than we actually are, right? And plenty of us, we we have a relationship with God, but we don't pursue God just for the sake of knowing God. There are usually other things that we would like to have from God. It is impossible for us, this side of heaven at least, have completely pure hearts but with the holy spirit's help we can grow in our purity of heart i think a great example of this is david uh, the king of israel from the old testament Uh, you might know the story of how david uh, revealed that he had a lot of impurity of heart Uh, he did some terrible things Uh, he committed adultery And then because he was the guy in charge, uh, he had the woman's husband sent to go to battle where he knew that he would die. So he was indirectly involved in murder, too. And when David realized the extent of his impurity of heart, when it really hit him how sinful his actions had been, uh, he, he prayed a prayer to God that's recorded in Psalm 51. And he said this, Create in me a pure heart. Oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Create in me a pure heart. And I think that's a good model uh, for us for what we should do when we recognize the impurity of our hearts. You know, we can't have a pure heart in our own power, it's impossible. But we can recognize the impurity in our hearts. And we can throw ourselves on the mercy of God and tell Him, Lord, create in me a pure that is a prayer that God delights to answer. So if you're not in a place where you can just want God for God, you can at least start getting there by wanting to want God for God and to ask God to transform your heart so that your desires are more in line uh, with what's going to bring true joy and, and true peace uh, in your life. All right, next, next beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called... Sons of God. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one because I think most of us understand uh, what a peacemaker is. Jesus is saying that God is with those who bring peace wherever they go. Now, I want to be clear about something. Being a peacemaker does not mean being someone who just avoids all conflict. It, we might be inclined to interpret that this way, but that is not what Jesus is saying. Uh, Jesus sometimes uh, engaged in conflict with people. He did not shy away from that. Um, And in fact, sometimes being a peacemaker means being willing to stand up and uh, force a conflict. Uh, For example, this is a very extreme example, but if you were a German, a Christian German uh, in 1930s Nazi Germany, uh, being a peacemaker in that situation would not mean avoiding all conflict with the Nazi Party. Being a peacemaker would mean standing up for the peace of the people whom the Nazi Party sought to kill, right? And that would mean a fair amount of conflict standing up to them. Being a peacemaker in that situation would mean going toward conflict, not moving away from it. Um, so. Being a peacemaker does not mean avoiding all conflict, but here's what it does mean. Being a peacemaker means avoiding conflicts where the purpose is not to bring peace. And that's another one that I have put on a low-tech slide for all of us, I think it's important for us to realize. Being a peacemaker does not mean avoiding all conflict, but it does mean avoiding conflicts where the purpose is not to bring peace. You know, there's a lot of conflicts that we can engage in that have nothing to do with helping to achieve peace. A lot of the time we engage in conflicts purely out of selfish desires, uh, purely out of our own pride, our own desire to uh, win an argument, that sort of thing. And Jesus is saying, when we, when we engage in the, that kind of conflict, um, that is not blessed. What's blessed is being a peacemaker. So this beatitude should inspire us to ask, am I the kind of person who brings peace wherever I go? Am I the kind of person who works for peace wherever I go? Am I the kind of person that helps people to be reconciled to God and reconciled to each other? Uh, Am I the kind of person who diffuses tension, or am I the kind of person who escalates it all the time? Am I the kind of person who helps people to recognize what they have in common? Or am I the kind of person that is always emphasizing our differences? Now, the contrast to that is, am I the kind of person... um, So, okay, if we're not peacemakers, what we do is we leave a trail of unresolved conflicts wherever we go. If we're not peacemakers, we're the kind of people who have this long list of people that we refuse to forgive, people that we refuse to talk to. Um, If we're not peacemakers, we are the kind of people where conflict just follows us wherever we go. We create conflict even when it's not necessary, even when it doesn't help lead to peace. And that is not the way that is blessed. And what I want us to appreciate here is that Jesus says that those of us who are peacemakers will be called sons of God. Sons of God. Now, why does he say that? He says that because when we are peacemakers, we are being like God. We are showing that God is our true Father, that we are part of the same family. Because no one has worked more for peace than God. Right. Uh, God went from heaven to earth. Uh, From glory to a cross in order to make peace with us. In order to seek reconciliation with us. God is the ultimate peacemaker and when we work as peacemakers in the world we mirror who he is to everybody else. Alright, one last beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, if we needed any proof that being a peacemaker uh, doesn't mean that you're always going to avoid conflict, here we have it, right? Because Jesus is clearly saying that if you're following him, sometimes people are going to hate you, people are going to insult you, people are going to say all kinds of nasty things about you uh, that aren't even true. So, doing the right thing does not necessarily lead to a high popularity uh, rating um, or an easy life. We have to recognize that. But Jesus reminds us that if we experience this kind of rejection and difficulty, we should consider ourselves blessed. Because even though we're being hated, God is with us, God is for us, and in the end, we will receive a great reward. Now, I want to make sure that we don't misuse this beatitude. Because over the years, I have seen some Christians use this beatitude to justify their ungracious, judgmental behavior. Um, It's important to recognize here uh, that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are you when you are persecuted for being judgmental and arrogant and rude, right? He says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness, right? Um, sometimes people can get upset with us and we interpret it as, oh, they're, they're mad at me because I'm just following Jesus because I'm just, I'm just doing the right thing. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we're just being difficult, right? We're not being winsome in how we share our faith. We're being judgmental. We're being rude. And we have to be very careful that we, we don't use this beatitude as an excuse for poor behavior and poor witness uh, on our part. Um, <laughs> the way uh, that I'm going to summarize this, uh, one more, one more low-tech slide, is let's make sure we're being hated for being peacemakers, not for being painmakers. I don't think "painmakers" is a word you'll find in the dish- dictionary, but I think we all know what that means, right? Let's make sure we're being hated for being peacemakers not for being pain makers. Because if we're being hated for being peacemakers, Jesus says, we are blessed. God is with us, God is for us, and there is eventually a reward for that. So again, four states of blessedness, right? Uh, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is what true blessedness looks like. And these blessings, these states of blessedness, are just as available to us now, or even more available to us, than they ever have been. Amen? Amen.